this is Osatru Academics here. Osatru is the belief in the Norse gods. It's the native Norse religion. Think Vikings, Thor, Odin, etc. The etc is what I talk about. We've all heard someone say that Odin is the god of wisdom or war, and that Thor is the god of thunder. Frigga is the goddess of the household, or that Freya is the goddess of war and love, and so on and so forth, and so fifth and sixth. To compartmentalize the gods into jobs or roles isn't found in heathenry. It's actually from Christian sainthood. It's not a heathen idea. So today I want to talk to you about the essence of the gods. Much of the lore is very poetic. The prose edda is poetic, and obviously the poetic edda is very poetic by namesake. Poetry is a way to describe something too complex to directly explain completely. Think of love, for instance. There's tons of love poems for a reason. Love is complex. It's an emotion, a call to action, a promise. There are so many elements to love that to try to explain true love precisely, you can't sum it up into just one complete sentence without lacking important elements. Poetry lets you explain the feeling of something rather than a literal description. While a prose narrative might describe a character as an old woman with her long gray hair down, poetry would describe the woman as a weathered shell of skin with gray draped on her shoulders. She doesn't have a literal shell of skin. She isn't a fleshy turtle. It gives you the feeling that this woman is tired, worn, had experienced, seen things. She's burdened even. It never tells you those things directly. But you feel it. It shows depth into the subject that's in focus. The same is true for skaldic poetry. Thor is not the CEO of Thunder and Lightning. He isn't sitting at a throne commanding lightning and thunder to go here and then there and then here and then a little over there. When you hear the word thunder, what associations do you think of? Loud? Booming? Powerful? Unpredictable? Rumbling? Can shake the ground? Startling? That word means those things. Those are attributes of Thor. He doesn't shoot lightning bolts like Zeus. He isn't Emperor Palpatine. He doesn't wield lightning and thunder in the stories. He is loud, booming, powerful, unpredictable at times, can shake the ground, and is startling. His hammer, Mjolnir, is lightning. But it isn't a lightning bolt. It doesn't shoot lightning. It isn't some Nikola Tesla invention. It isn't a laser gun. Pew, pew. When you think of lightning, you think of destructive, explosive, dangerous, quick, shining, shocking, deadly. That's his weapon. It isn't lightning itself. It's a destructive, explosive, quick, shining, shocking, and deadly weapon. In the same way, Frigga isn't Cupid. She doesn't sit on a throne looking out over all the people and go, Oh, that boy over there would be so cute with this girl over here. Oh my gosh. They would make such cute babies. I'm going to make them fall in love. No. When you think of the word home, it has connotations of safety, shelter, warmth, family, rest, sanctuary. When you think of the word family, it invokes bond, love, loyalty, companionship, trust, ally. When you think of a mother, you think of giving, caring, warm, loving, protective, nurturing. All of that 
is who is Frega. She doesn't scroll through feeds of families enthralled by how cute they are. She is warmth, safety, and caring. But what has to be one of my favorites, Loki is the god of fire. How often does he use fire? When does he use fire again? Is he a secret pyromaniac? His name doesn't even mean fire. It's poetry, people. When you think of fire, it has opposite dual connotations. It means warmth, a useful tool, lighting of dark times, something lovely to look at, comforting, even cleansing. It also means pain, death, destruction, uncontainable. They have two opposite connotations. Loki was a friend and helper of the gods. Then he was a destroyer of them. Loki is like fire. He's not the god of fire with some flamethrower starting forest fires. The Poetic Edda and the Prose Edda were written to preserve the skaldic style of poetry. Skalds were Nordic poets. You have to remember that the language you are reading the poems or stories in is not the language they were written in. Have you ever listened to a different language of a song you know? Disney songs are the funniest to hear. Have you noticed that the rhyming scheme is very different and there's gaps or crammed in syllables with the tune? A translator has to balance sticking to the same meaning without losing much of the tune or rhyming sequence. The same thing happens with the poems when they are translated out. Here's an example, just a simple poem. Roses are red, violets are blue. Poems are red, but I'm talking to you. In poorly pronounced German, it would be Rosen sind rot, weichen sind blau, gadisch sind zulisen, aber ich rede mit dir. It's lost the beat of the original poem. It's lost the rhyming. It's lost some of the meaning. It lost the homophone of the action red and the color red in the original poem. Because we are reading translated copies of all the skaldic poems, so many intricacies are lost in translation. Because of that, there's even more decoding to be done to get to the original meaning of the cryptic sentences. Skaldic poetry is one of the most complex forms of Western European poetry. Some were written to be recited with a group before the warriors in the hall feasting. They were the original boy bands. Syllables, stress, and sounds were used as tools. They were like notes and the skalds were like instruments in a song. The poems would have to be remembered exactly and not paraphrased. If words were swapped out, the meter, sound, stress, and even the meanings changed. The notes in the songs changed if someone paraphrased them. That's how these stories could be preserved so well orally, even after generations had passed. They had to be memorized painstakingly. That's why it was a respected profession to craft and to perform poems. Another thing to remember about poetry is poetic circumlocution. That's when something is vaguely described. It's using more words than necessary to describe it. It's a roundabout way to describe something. I could say, my daughters are bright flowers. They bloom in every field in the coldest winter. They are the moon over the still ocean. They aren't literally plants or emitting light. They aren't living out in every field outside in the winter. They aren't orbiting out in space. 
I could just sum that up that my kids are comforting or say that they're lovely, always with me in hard times. They give me a sense of peace. But I was vague with poetry. I invoke deeper meaning by being indirect. The gods' many names and titles are poetic. They're not literal. They are cryptically descriptive. They are more meaningful than just the god of thunder or love or fire sitting up on a throne controlling elements in Midgard. Our house doesn't refer to the gods as being chiefs of certain elements. We look at them as essences. At times, we even refer to the gods themselves as essences, since they aren't literal humanoids. The essence of thunder, or wisdom, or fire, or family, the principle of those words, the root, the crux, the heart, that is the god or goddess. See? You understood that I wasn't talking about a plant root or horcruxes or an actual beating heart. You didn't take those literally. Don't take poetry literally either. It isn't meant to be. Each line is deeper than that. Dig deeper and you'll find more treasure. So who created skaldic poetry? Or should I say, who birthed verbal art? Agir asked that very question to Bragi during a feast accounted to in the prose edda. Bragi's answer was quite, um, something. Being Bragi, it was, of course, poetic. This is what he said. At the end of the Vanir Aesir War, everyone spit into a jar to seal their peace treaty. This spit became a very wise man who traveled all over. Two dwarfs tricked him, killed him, and made magic meat out of his blood. This magic meat would make anyone who drank from it a poet and a sage. After the dwarfs did some more murdering, they had to pay over the magic mead to a giant to atone for killing his father. The giant had his daughter guard the magic meat inside of a mountain. Odin made nine slaves kill each other while working out in a field. When the master was upset that they were not going to be able to finish all the work without any help, Odin made a deal with him. He would do all the work of growing for the year for a drink of the magic mead. The master said he didn't have the mead, but he knew who did. At the end of the work, they both went to see if they could get the payment of the mead from the giant with the mead. They couldn't. So they decided to steal the mead. The master tried to double-cross Odin and kill him, but missed. Odin made a deal with the daughter so that he could get three drinks of mead. He chugged all the mead and then turned into an eagle. He flew the heck out of there. Not like a bat out of hell, but like an eagle out of a mountain. Odin was chased by the furious giant who owned the mead. The gods saw him being chased, and they set out jars for the mead they knew he stole. He spit the magic mead into the jars they had laid out on the ground by and for the gods. The droplets that missed made the poets of man. And that's the story. Well, all right, obviously, it's very poetic in itself. There is a warehouse district to unpack here. To get to what literally happened, you have to break down the symbolism and connotations of each sentence. You have to ask yourself now, was that jar that everyone spit into for peace just symbolic of two groups of warring people talking about peace and settling it together and reaching unity? Was it that every person had a say in the treaty? Was the spit becoming a wise man and traveling around just to say that the treaty went viral? Everyone who heard the idea of a treaty thought it was super wise and they learned from it? It's a lot to unpack, and because it's poetry, it might have different correct answers and layers for each person. Agir also asked Bragi during the feast, How many kinds of poetry are there? Bragi says, quote, 
There are only two kinds that all poetry falls into, diction and meter. He further explains that there are three kinds of poetic diction. Quote, one is to name everything by its own name. Another is to write it with a pronoun. But the third sort of diction is called a kenning, a descriptive name. And this sort is so managed that when we name Odin or Thor or Tyr, we add to their name a reference to some other god or elf or we make mention of some of his works. Then the appellation, or title, belongs to him who corresponds to the whole phrase, and not just him who is actually named. Thus we speak of Odin as Sigtir, Hangatir, or Farmatir, and such names we call simple appellatives. So, kennings. Let's talk about kennings. Kennings are so cool. They are renaming something much more awesomer. They can be a title in relation to someone else, Like instead of saying Frigg, you could just say the wife of Odin. The more complex way of kennings is that you rename something with a two-word riddle. You have a base word that is close, and then the second half is the nature of the original item. For example, say you want to say ships, but that's so mundane and you're more creative than that. Ships are used to travel and carry people and items like horses. But horses could be used for fun, to show affluence, For breeding and trading, a business, sadly calories, you need the second half of the kenning to limit down the use. You need to give another hint, like saying it was a horse, but it was used in the sea. An old kenning for ships was horses of the sea. A modern one is bookworm. In scaldic times, someone frequently digging through books might have been described as a worm of books. I think one of the best ways to understand scaldic kennings is to see some examples of it. So here are some examples. It'll be like some fun riddles. What is the wound sea? Like a sea of a wound. Think of a wound, just like a spear or an axe wound. Then think of the nature of the ocean. It's a liquid. Now think of a wound and a liquid. Got the meaning of wound sea? Blood. Blood has been called the wound sea. Now, what about sleep of the sword? What is sleep of the sword? Think of swords. What are they used for? Now think of sleep. What is something that's close to sleep, but not sleep, and has something to do with swords? Death. Death has been called the sleep of the sword. Here's another one. Swans of blood. What is like a swan? but not a swan that has to do with blood. Ravens. Ravens have been called swans of blood. They would eat the dead and get all bloody and nasty. But one of my favorites, I just have to tell you, the ocean is a whale road. It's a road for whales. Think about how clever that is. I could not talk about Norse poetry and not talk about Bragi himself. Bragi is a god of poetry. That doesn't mean he possessed your fingers and typed out that depressing emo poem you wrote when you were 15. As Bragi himself even explained, it's poetic diction. Poetry was his great deed. He was an awesome poet. Since we're quite a few years away from the zenith of Bragi's admiration, let's hear what Snorri had to say about Bragi 800 years ago. Or should I say how Bragi describes Bragi? Skalska Parma talks about Bragi, saying how should one paraphrase Bragi? 
by calling him husband of Athun, first maker of poetry, and the long-bearded god, and son of Odin. Bragi was an amazing skald. I say was on purpose. There's a hypothesis that the god Bragi is actually the human skald Bragi Bodasan. Snorri himself quotes the man Bragi in his Edda. Bragi was a celebrated poet that served renowned Swedish kings such as Ragnar and Bjorn. He's sometimes credited as the father of skaldship. The best case I've seen presented, Bragi was a human, is based on numerology. The favorite number in Norse lore is three and the multiples of it, nine and twelve. The same is true of the primary Aesir. In two versions of the Prose Edda, there are twelve gods worthy of praise when you remove Loki, Valley, and Bragi. We know that Loki is not Aesir by blood. We know that Vali is the blood brother of Odin. That leaves Bragi being excluded from the list of those, quote, worthy of divine worship. Why would he be excluded? That's not clear. It's also important to know that the man Bragi Borison had a wife named Athun, which is the same as the god Bragi's wife. Whether this means that Bragi Borison is a demigod promoted to full godship after death, a coincidence, a literary liberty by Snorri, or just a favorite dead poet in Odin's Hall. That's not clear. So to wrap it up, to call Odin the god of wisdom would be like calling your wingman friend the master of ladies. Your friend isn't the literal lord of every female. It's just detailing his great skill. It's just describing who he is and what he's done. The same is in every title of the gods and goddesses. Deeds mattered a whole heck of a lot more in ancient times than they do today. Earning a name for yourself was a big deal. Having your great deeds recorded in song or poetry was a way to live on after death. Think about how we still speak about Ragnar so long after his death. If no one, like Bragi Bodison, recorded his deeds, his life would have disappeared in time. The titles of the gods and goddesses and their deeds are not to be taken literally. They are poetic. They explain the complex nature of the gods better that way. The gods and goddesses are impossible for us to comprehend fully. We are just 3D mortal mammals trying to explain a being beyond our comprehension. Poetry is the best way to do it. Now for your related quote to ponder. It comes from Grimness Mall stanza 49. It's Odin speaking about some of his many names. Mass person they call me in Giroth's hall. With Asmund, castrated am I. Ruler of keels I was when I was in a sled. At the council, poet I am called. As wanderer I go to the fight. God of wishes, spear shaker, equally high, and shouter, wand bearer, and gray beard when I am with the gods. Till next time.